Hello and welcome back to Innovation Matters, the sustainable innovation podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I'm your host, Anthony Schiavo, uh, Senior Director here at Lux, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Kartik Sabramian and Mike Coleman, and it is the year 2024. We are kicking the year off with a bang by doing some podcasts, and yeah, it's great to, it's great to be back, great to be podcasting for another year. Uh, Kartik, how was your uh, how was your New Year's? Yeah, it was really good. Um, enjoyed the fireworks here at Rotterdam. Martin Garrix was here. Unfortunately, I couldn't see him, but uh, was playing some music on the <laughs> other bank. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Um, fireworks lasted about twelve minutes. Uh, danced till four in the morning after. But uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was in bed by nine. In bed by nine, easily. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think old, I've stayed old, up old past busted. midnight. Yeah, for real. I haven't stayed up past midnight for New Year's in like, I don't know, seven years maybe. Like I was like 24 or 25 and when I was like, you know what, I'm too old for this. Like, I'm, I'm clocking out on this, this New Year's day. <laughs> yeah. It was, I was really young. <laughs> well, I made How it. How about to- you, Mike? As you did as tonight? did my children, which made made it made for made for a rough uh, rough time getting them back uh, out of bed and back to school on the on the second. But anyway, oh we had, wow, we had a good time. Yeah. Went out in the backyard, set off some fireworks at midnight. That was fun. Well, everything uh, that is old is is new again for the year twenty twenty four, and that includes an old friend of the podcast, which we are <laughs> we are happy to revisit. LK ninety nine. If you have uh, forgotten, or you don't remember from last year, there was a lot of excitement around the supposed or announced uh, room temperature superconductor, LK99. And we recently got another announcement um, that a group had both developed a sort of LK99 variant that worked not quite at room temperature, but, you know, at a relatively relatively high temperatures, I think like negative 20 centigrade, if I remember correctly. Um, And there was claims that this had been verified, you know, by some other group or replicated in some way. I think the position, the the correct position of this podcast is skepticism. (laughs) That's definitely the position we took about four to five months ago. Don't, don't, don't go back and check. Um, But you know, it's, it's worth keeping an eye on. It is a big deal, right? And it is, we we touched on this later in our interview, but it is possible that a breakthrough could could happen. So it's worth keeping an eye on. But skepticism is probably the the name of the game for now. Yeah, this does appear to be a little less sloppy potentially than the the original uh, LK ninety nine work. Um, but uh, and we wanted to give it give it a shout out here at the top, because, especially because we did talk about it briefly at the end of our of our interview. But uh, let's see. Let's what let's see. Yeah, it was not just the temperature, right? There was also a mention about it requiring higher pressures, maybe, to exhibit those superconducting properties. I don't know what those pressures are. I couldn't find that um, on the X feed. Yeah, I'm I'm also quite skeptical, and I'm I would like to know who actually replicated this, and how did they replicate this? Do you think this is legit, like the replication part? Mm, I, I don't think it's legit in the sense that it'll need to be replicated a lot of times in a lot of different ways by a lot of different groups. Um, so just saying, Oh, we replicated or we did it. And then also we, this other group replicated it is it, it, it needs a lot of different independent verification around the world for it to really be legit. And again, I mean, like we talked about, you know, uh, you know, to, to maybe defend our, our previous takes on LK99. Right. Um, we were, you know, even when we were saying, Hey, look, let's, let's assume this, this works the way they say it does. There's still a ton of challenges after that point, right? Scaling it up and producing it and doing it in a way that's consistent and cost-effective and economic and, and all sorts of other things and, you know, durable. So, you know, even if you're skeptical about, or even if you, you put aside the skepticism about the veracity of the results, which is, you know, kind of what we, we were trying to do uh, the first time around, there's still a ton of challenges. But yeah, uh, on to other, maybe more or perhaps roughly as substantive news. There was a recent announcement that that you flagged up, Mike, uh, from Nest, that they are going to be switching to a renewables and circular solutions refining hub. 
Um, can, you, can you tell us a little about that and, and what caught your eye? Yeah, this is uh, the Finnish company Neste, I think they say it. Don't they say Neste? Anyway, N-E-S-T-E. And they've announced that they're going to be converting their uh, their main refinery and in Finland to, uh, how, how do they put it, uh, renewable and circular solutions uh, refining hub. So basically this is, you know, I think uh, the first, or at any rate, certainly one of the first examples of a refining company converting full bore over to non-petroleum uh, feedstocks, or anyway, they're going to do so by, by 2030. So it's going to be be a process for sure. But, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of mass balancing and blending in of, um, you know, pyrolysis oil or other uh, from biomass or plastic waste and, and things like that happening. Um, this is a, a case of somebody really, really committing to um, making that that transformation completely over, you know, from now to it's only six years now, officially to 20 to 2030. Right. That's that's a not not a not a very long time in the, in the context of the, the oil and, and, and chemicals industries here. And I think it's, you know, not surprising that it's a company in Europe that's, uh, that's doing this. And, you know, uh, because of the feedstock and energy transition challenges, you know, without a lot of access, particularly, obviously, following the Russia-Ukraine war, without a lot of access to petroleum, traditional petroleum, fossil fuel feedstocks, but I thought it was a notable development. I was curious for your your take on it, Anthony, because I know you've this is something particularly in the European context that you've you wrote. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things to flag up. I mean, first of all, for our listeners, you know, Neste is is obviously sort of already a leader. You know, this is not like a company who has never done anything in in bio based or circular before. Right. So this is a company that already has a lot of experience and a lot of expertise here. One thing that really stood out to me, if you go back to the 2022, because basically they in, in 22, they launched a, quote, strategic study to um, like study this and, and, and figure out their, their plan here. And in that announcement, they basically said, hey, we're looking at transitioning fully away from uh, fossil fuels in the mid 2030s. And in this announcement, you know, having completed the strategic study, they are, you know, saying, okay, we're going to get this transition done by 2030, right? So uh, probably at least part of that is, is, you know, hedging, but it it does seem, you know, based on the specific, you know, the plan transformation, this is from the text, will complete in phases, requires multiple investments during the next decade before targeted completion in the mid 2030s. But but they really should, it, it seems like they're, accelerating this this timeline a little bit just based on this obviously there's a lot of hedging here in terms of what they say and you know like oh like there's a later line where it's like the final timeline for transitioning from crude oil will be determined later and like they're not it's not actually like that strong of a commitment but it does seem like it it, it does seem like it's moving a little bit more quickly or that there's an opportunity for them to move a little more quickly than maybe they expected in the first place probably that means with with delays you're going to end up actually getting this probably in the mid 2030s as opposed to them actually meeting their you know meeting some sort of mid or some sort of 2030 target or or, or going faster than expected but you know it, it's interesting to see just like the way the the corporate press releases talk about this kind of thing and and you know try and glean you know or interpret what you can from that what do you think the um you know, renewable or, you know, basically biomass mm-hmm. and plastic waste are sort of being talked about here as feedstocks. Uh, how much of that do you expect to realistically be biomass versus plastic or perhaps CO2 as feedstock? I think it's got to be majority biomass. It's got to be majority biomass as for both. I think they have a lot more access to biomass in, in, in Finland than they do access to plastic waste, also for cost reasons. Um, and, and if you look at you know, Nest, they already, the thing they've scaled up most successfully is, is biomass, right? They have a big bionaphtha business, uh, or at least uh, an established bionaphtha bio business. Um, you know, it's possible they could source a, a good amount of plastic waste derived crude. Um, but with the current regulatory situation in Europe and the rules on, on mass balancing and the rules on just like, the, the definition of recycling, right? 
um, it's really going to be challenging for them to to scale that up as aggressively as as they'll need to 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 make this transition happen. And I think there's just a lot more. I think there's just a lot of less risk around the biomass for this kind of of retrofit, right? I, I think other types of recycling are probably the best bet for for recycling overall. And so I don't see that fitting in here as much. Yeah, I mean, I guess the mass, the regulatory point about mass balance is, is probably salient here. If 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 the regulations, particularly around plastic waste, maybe but but aren't going to support yeah. mass balance claims, and it's like, well, all right, one one way to solve that is to just we're not going to blend petroleum in at all. It's yeah, all. and it makes it a lot more challenging to do this type of gradual transition for sure. Yeah, what's uh, interesting for me with this was uh, how much they're going to produce by the mid twenty thirties. I think they say they're going to have a capacity of 3 million tons, but that's of course going to be split between sustainable aviation fuels, renewable diesel, feedstocks for the chemicals industry, etc. Um, I was just reading through what the EU mandates and uh, for sustainable aviation fuel, and I think they expect SAF to be about 2.4 million tons uh, as the demand of, by 2030 is what they have targeted. Um, and I don't know much about the SAF players and who does what, but I'm guessing if Neste is one of the leaders, I'm guessing they're going to allocate more of their efforts towards SAF than the others. Yeah, I would expect this to be very, very uh, SAF focused for sure. And the last thing I think we wanted to flag up again, Mike, you uh, you picked up on this, but there's an interesting load growth report that you uh, that you were reading and, and sort of messaging us about. <laughs> or before we got on the phone here. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and I thought this was interesting. Um, it, it basically, this is a report from Grid Strategies where they're saying uh, the era of flat power demand is over. And if you look at some of the charts in here, the growth in, you know, total electricity demand, peak demand grow, uh, I guess peak demand is one of the main things that they're they're looking at in here. It was, you know, like 2%-ish through most of the 90s. Uh, but then sort of since about 2000 or a little after, it's been, the growth has been dropping. So it's it's still growing, but the rate is, you know, growing at now less than 1% a year rather than, you know, like the 2% that it was, that, that it was at before. Um, and they're basically saying like, we're kind of at the inflection point where that's going to, to turn around now. And it's also interesting some of the, the, the reasons for it. Um, they're talking about the industrial load increasing, mm-hmm. right? That's actually one of the, the bigger, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in here about, so one data centers comes up. That's, that's one of the things that's a big and growing source of demand. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, the actual, you know, at least from a capital investment standpoint, you're actually seeing more growth coming from, uh, industrials. And so all of these new manufacturing plants that are, that are being built for batteries or, you know, mineral processing or, 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 or whatever, and EVs and stuff in, in the U S as, as a result of all of the, you know, in large part as a result of all the incentives and the, the IRA and things like that, uh, that's a big driver that is going to be increasing the demand for, for electricity. You know, and then of course, on top of that, you have, uh, you know, the usual things you expect as as electric vehicles grow, as you know, and as people, you know, also also regulatory driven, start to convert from gas or heating oil to heat pumps for for heating their homes. That's leading to an increase in in, in electricity demand. Um, and I actually had a conversation with a with a you know executive at a at a at a large electrical utility a couple of months ago, and he was talking about this as sort of one of their challenges, like all of these things are happening and these are generally good developments as far as the overall energy transition and the climate. But he's like, it's our emissions as, as the electrical utility are going to be going up because there's just more demand for like when people switch from gas powered cars to electric cars or from heating oil to heat pumps, like overall emissions go down, but our emissions go up because, you know, it's, it's now being, being driven by the, the electricity that we, we provide. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting signpost, I think also in just the, the evolution of the energy system here in the U S and the way that that's, that's really starting to, to show up in, in the demand profile and in just this 
kind of fundamental shift in where the emissions are coming from. Yeah. I mean, uh, the other thing I think that's interesting from this that I would call out quickly is just that the report talks a lot about building of uh, capacity, transmission capacity, and how in basically transmission capacity construction has dropped by like two thirds. Like the U.S. installed, I think, 1,700 miles uh, per year in the first half of the 2010s, but only 645 miles per year on average in the second half. Um, and it's like, we've really, really, I mean, you talked about grid reliability, Kartik, for, you know, your, your big prediction for, for 2024. And it's like, you see numbers like that and you're like, oh, wow, we're like really far from where we were not, not even that long ago in terms of these things. Exactly. And they're also talking about how investments aren't sufficient for grid capacity and things like that. The one thing that when Mike you spoke about how a utility is thinking about their carbon emissions going up because they have to generate more uh, to you know compensate for the 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 switch from gasoline power to electric vehicles and things like that. Um, I think what the utilities also have to really consider at this moment in time would also be uh, the growth of distributed energy resources, especially rooftop solar, batteries behind the meter, because if you overinvest in grid capacity and you realize you don't need that much capacity because you have all these distributed energy resources coming up, then, you know, you could have spent your time focusing on other things, right? Uh, so I think that would be quite the challenge. How do you optimize that? And even this report was talking about how there were challenges with underestimating load growth. Uh, and and how to get those values correct, I think that's going to be important. I think digital technologies here will play a major role, not just machine learning algorithms and things like that, but also sensing technologies, finding out where the pressure points are, where the growth is needed, and how you optimize those solutions to basically stay on track with the energy transition and not go astray. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the the other thing that that this, this report is also emphasizing, which is I don't know. It's interesting. I could see either way, right? There's saying like, if anything, these estimates are probably low because a lot of the forecasts, for instance, don't have a lot of the demand for hydrogen electrolysis in there, right? But that's another thing that's kind of shifting, making hydrogen from steam methane reforming versus make you know switching from that to making it from electrolysis reduces overall emissions quite a bit. But it, again, it increases the electricity demands and the emissions from the electricity sector. Um, so I think you know when you uh, on the one hand, I can see the case for this forecast being, you know, even potentially conservative as far as how much this uh, this this load is the the loads are going to grow on on the grid. But on the other hand, I do see this sort of long term decrease in, um, you know, in in the growth rate and and wonder about that. You know, the the, the forces that have been driving that in terms of increased energy efficiency, uh, I think in particular. Uh, aren't going away either, mm-hmm. and that is going to counteract some of these the, these effects either. And there's obviously a lot of also investment in in energy efficiency and in you know, some of the the solutions that that Kartik's mentioning, like we you know some of the digital solutions around uh, you know basically demand response that can that can help to reduce the peak demand that's needed for for some of these systems. So I wouldn't be surprised either if it if if those type of innovations are able to help keep the moderate some of that uh, that growth and, and and keep it lower but it, it definitely is going to be a notable shift in the in the in the energy economy yeah before I hand it to you Anthony I think this also signals that utilities should start thinking about switching their resources to more low carbon continuous sources like geothermal and nuclear or even hydropower in regions where they have hydropower potential if they already don't um, especially with things like electrolysis where you need a constant supply of electricity. I think this should help utilities realize that they should start looking at it right now so that by 2028, by 2030, they're in a good position to transition to these low carbon sources and not worry about emissions from generating electricity from the sources they have in their portfolio. All right. Uh, Welcome back, everyone. We're here for an interview with Jacob Gross, who is uh, someone we at Lux have known for a while. He was a was a colleague of ours at uh, at at one point, then spent a a bunch of years uh, working at BASF, including BASF Venture Capital, and now uh, for the last several years has has started and been been leading his own company uh, called Copernic Catalysts. So. 
maybe to just to kick us off, Jake, if you can tell us a little bit, a little bit about Copernic, and I guess you know, sort of particularly the backstory, like what what made you want to move from you know being a corporate VC to to the entrepreneurial side, and why this particular opportunity caught your eye. Sounds great, Mike, and uh, uh, thanks for the invite. I, I think I'm probably the first person you've spoken to on this podcast who can say they've done the Lux trifecta of being, uh, you know, an analyst at Lux, a client at Lux, and now uh, an interviewee as a startup. But um, yeah, to answer your question, um, so let's see. I take it back to 2021 uh, when the the pandemic was raging, and I was working for BSF Venture Capital, as you mentioned, and. Um, you know, we were told at the time, basically, just to, to stay at home, you know, slow things down. Uh, and I started to think about what I wanted to do next with my career. And I realized that there were two things that were very important to me. Um, the first was uh, sustainability. Uh, I wanted to, to do something that was sustainable, but also um, do something in the startup world uh, that was entrepreneurial, because I've had that itch for a while. Um, and when you come from the chemicals industry, as I did with uh, almost a decade at BSF, and you start to think, okay, where can I make an impact? How can I make an impact in this space? Um, again, I guess two streams of thought were, were coming together at the time. Uh, the first was, uh, well, if you want to be impactful, um, you have to go to the, from a climate point of view, you have to go for the largest volume chemicals. And, and ammonia has the largest carbon footprint in the chemical industry. It's responsible for about 1% of global carbon emissions uh, just producing ammonia. Um, so that was a, a natural place to start, especially since the uh, catalyst uh, for ammonia is uh, about 100 years old. And so probably pretty ripe for innovation. Um, and the second stream of thought that, that uh, I came to at the time was, um, you know, I have a background in physics, as you know and uh, had been following computational materials design for a while. And um, I realized that just as computation had revolutionized the pharmaceutical industry a few decades ago, um, starting with, with Vertex, and for everyone who's read Billion Dollar Molecule, it's a, it's a great book, I highly recommend it. Um, and uh, then going through uh, what Schrodinger did with Nimbus and, and so on, um, I felt that the technology had gotten to the point where you could start to apply computational design to the harder problem of heterogeneous catalysis. Um, the, the technology was there, everything was ready. And so we, we wanted to be a first mover there. Um, so those, those two uh, ideas were um, enough to, to get me out the door at BSF and found Copernic in the summer of, of 2021. Uh, we got seed financing from Future Ventures and also from the engine. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been uh, going from there. Yeah. So yeah, maybe let's turn a little bit. I mean, I the the ammonia and energy transition angle and, and you know kind of climate impact is 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 obviously really important. But you know, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot with with clients in in particular over the last you know six months to to a year or so since the launch of ChatGPT has been the impact of AI and and um, and and you know, these sort of digital technologies on the innovation and R&D process. And I understand that all of what you're doing is is AI based. There's like, you know, DFT and things like the more sort of traditional molecular ab initio uh, type of stuff is, is, is a part of it as well. But, you know, kind of being in that whole whole mix, what do you see is the way that those type of computational techniques, you know, working with Schrodinger, you guys have a partnership with them, right? How is that going to affect the way that, that people, you know, you and companies in this space in general go about R&D and, and innovation in the future? Yeah, great question. And, and certainly uh, very topical, as you say. Um, I think that it really depends on what you're trying to do with, um, with innovation. If you're a, a large company, a typical Lux client, and you are trying to take your existing products and improve them. You know, incremental innovation, you bring a few more percent out of your efficiencies, things like that. And you probably have a, a, a fair amount of internal data um, that is proprietary and that you can apply to, to this kind of thing. Um, then I think using AI uh, machine learning is, is very natural uh, in that space. Um, you, uh, you, know, you have a large data set, you can train it um, well, you can, you can make good uh, conclusions probably about how to, you know, what works and what doesn't in terms of 
tweaking your formulation, tweaking your, uh, your composition of, of your uh, whatever materials you're developing. Um, I think when you're going for what we're doing at Copernic right now with, again, with our exclusive partner Schrodinger, as you point out, um, in terms of radically redesigning something and, and trying to come up with something you know, new for the first time in material science, um, I don't really think that AI and machine learning is the best way to start for that process in general, um, or at least uh, specifically for catalysis, we found that. Because for catalysis, a um, couple of things. First, there aren't really very good, large, publicly available data sets uh, to train. Um, there, and what, what data sets exist are will lead you in the wrong direction because um, as probably everyone listening to this uh, podcast is aware, with catalysis, it's all about the ugliness and the defects and the, you know, um, you know the, the, the stuff that's not perfect about a catalyst, right? And a lot of the publicly available uh, databases, whether it's materials project or, or whatever it is, um, they, uh, they, they start with perfect materials. Uh, and that's, I guess, is also true for uh, Meta's Open Catalyst and, and, and pretty much everything that's out there. So what we um, have been working on with Schrodinger uh, over the last few years and, and what we continue to do going forward is, is um, do more physics-based modeling, as you mentioned, DFT. Uh, and then as we build up our proprietary data sets and, and have a better sense of uh, you know, how those work, you know, we'll start to employ AI ML to uh, reduce the computational expense of those calculations. But um, that's our that's been our approach, and I think that will uh, you know be our approach for the near future in terms of the the kind of screening models we're developing for our, our heterogeneous ca- catalysts. Yeah. So what is the what is kind of the secret sauce in that? If you know, because certainly I think that's the kind of thing that the established companies, you know, DFT ab initio type of stuff, that that type of traditional molecular traditional molecular modeling, they 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 do a lot of. What your advantage here is just that you're kind of going more for more willing uh to to kind of go off and try a very different type of direction with these with these type of catalyst designs as opposed to what you know somebody at topso or whatever would be doing yeah well it's a couple things i mean um i think the you're you're absolutely first of all you're absolutely right mike i think you know whether it's topso or bsf or whoever um i don't think it's a secret that that all those companies uh have uh you know dft modeling teams and and you know know how to how to do this kind of modeling and, and uh, their experts are, are very good technically. Um, uh, I think, you know, Schrodinger is world-class. Um, uh, I think that others, others do a very good job as well. Um, I, I think the real difference about what, we, uh, how we approach it at Copernic uh, versus how it's approached in, in large organizations, is just a matter of, of risk tolerance at the end of the day and the uh, position um, as a startup, as opposed to a large organization, a large organization for the most part, uh, you're, you're very conservative about your R&D spend. You want projects that will have a high uh, chance of success. Uh, and so you're, you're probably going to want to say, okay, we've got this existing product. You know, how can we just, how can we improve it rather than um, kind of putting yourself out there and, and doing a, a saying, okay, we're just going to screen a whole bunch of materials and try to do something radically new. Um you know, that's the whole innovator's dilemma. You know, it might cannibalize your business. Yeah, yeah. It might, you know, there, there's, a, there's a ton of reasons uh, you're disincentivized to, to, to do that in a large organization. And I, and I saw that firsthand, um, you know, at Lux and, and, and BSF. And, and it's just, it's, it's um, endemic to, to large organizations. But when you're a startup, you've got to come up with something new and it can't just be, you know, a little bit better. It's got to be a lot better. Uh, and you're, you have no, uh, for better or for worse, you have no existing products to cannibalize. So you're, you're out... And you're really using these tools in a way that um, is a lot uh, more aggressive. Um, so you're you're trying to discover something that's really radically new. Uh, and I'm very proud to say that we've we've been able to do that, and we've experimentally validated our models and and have an ammonia catalyst that that uh, we're we're very proud of. So um, it, it can work, but it's it's definitely uh, a you know a riskier proposition, and and there's no guarantees. Can I ask you, because I, I want to come back to this point. I think it's very important, especially in the context of scaling up ammonia production, which you mentioned is this huge, huge industry. But you know, one of the things we're really interested with this podcast is innovation process. And the partnership with Schrodinger is really core to what you're doing. I'm curious as to you know how that came about and, and kind of what the 
maybe what the reaction to that pitch was like or, or what that process was, because it is, like you said, it's a high risk thing. The, the catalyst industry is pretty notoriously, uh, you know, very, very not risk taking type of industry. So I, I'm just curious as to what that conversation was like and, and how that partnership developed. Yeah. So, uh, wow. So I, I, I known, uh, Matt Halls, um, you, who leads the, uh, material science group at Schrodinger for over a decade, um, actually probably since my Lux days. Uh, and, um, he's a brilliant scientist and, um, you know, uh, always wanted kind of an excuse to, to, to work with him in some way. Um, and, what uh, what happened when I was when I was coming up with the idea of Copernic and and you know as I mentioned computation was was kind of at the core of what I wanted to do with it. Um, I started to think about who would make a good partner, and of course you can go the academic route. Um, academics, you know, are are brilliant, but but they're often there's you know challenges working with them, as I'm sure you know everyone uh, here is aware. Um, and but I I, I thought uh, you know if I could my first choice would be to work with Schrodinger just because you know they they commercially set up they can do the calculations at scale uh, I have a high amount of respect for Matt and his team and so forth um, so I started talking uh, to them uh, you know very early on before I'd raised the seed round and it turned out that you know I um, getting the the partnership turned out to be decisive in closing the seed round uh, with with my investors. Um, and, you know, we started talking about a strategic partnership, couldn't really come to terms at that time. And so we, we settled on the idea of, OK, let's let's just start this out as a fee for service arrangement like, uh, um, you know, Schrodinger typically does with with their clients um, and, and go from there and see see how it works. And so so uh, that worked for us. That got us started um, soon after. I should I say Copernic, my co-founder, Aruna Ramkrishnan, joined us from from ExxonMobil. So she got involved as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we started working along that way and we started um, building these models. Uh, we uh, built out our high throughput experimentation lab in the, the Boston Cambridge area uh, at the beginning of 2023 and started uh, validating the results. And, and once we started getting very promising results, I think everyone uh, got very excited about it. And um, we started to talk about a more strategic relationship and, and we got that um, signed in the fall of, of 23, um, so, uh, you know, a few months ago, and uh, where it was able to announce it publicly. So we're really excited about that. Uh, we, it's exclusive four-year partnership to work on not just ammonia catalysts, but other catalysts as well in the space. Uh, and um, so I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that, but it wasn't something that just happened overnight. It, it, you know, there was a lot that went into building that relationship. Yeah, Jacob, uh... Because you mentioned ammonia as well, um, and I know your core focuses on ammonia. Um, uh, I think last year Shell released a report where they were talking about not wanting to go with ammonia, or uh, you know, trying to stay away from ammonia as a maritime fuel. Uh, so my question to you is: uh, Do you see ammonia as, um, or, or, or what do you think are the prospects for ammonia with maritime fuels? Do you think other companies should also be considering this, or? Or, or what are sort of the concerns? I, I think Shell mentioned toxicity is one of them. But besides that, and the second thing is also, what do you think about ammonia's role in general in decarbonization? I mean, do you think it's going to just be restricted to marine fuels? Do you think they could probably be used in power generation uh, with ammonia combustion, things like that? So where do you see ammonia's prospects? Sure, that's a good question. Um so uh, first of all, let me say that, you know, ammonia is our, our first product, but we definitely intend to leverage our, our computational design platform to develop other products down the line. And, and the reason uh, I say this is, is just to say that while we're, you know, I certainly have, have some bias toward ammonia, which is why we got started there. Um, you know, we, we plan to have e-fuel catalysts too in the future. So I, I don't think ammonia is the, the solution for everything necessarily. Um, but that said, uh, and I didn't see the, the specific report you're, you're mentioning um, regarding maritime, but I think um, the concerns that people have with uh, ammonia maritime uh, are tend to be around the, the toxicity uh, primarily. And, and uh, uh, ammonia is obviously a toxic uh, gas. Um, it is shipped safely at the tens of millions of tons all around the world. So that the, the shipping of ammonia is a solved problem. 
But when you start to think about using it as a fuel source um, and, and doing bunkering and, and stuff like that, those are, those are problems that uh, you need to be addressed and need to be taken very seriously. Um, another issue on the, on, the, on the minus side with ammonia, um, just you know, full disclosure, I've heard around the uh, um, your conferences and things like that, is just um, the uh, the emissions, um, whether it's NOx or whether it's laughing gas, or you know um, uh, that's all uh, a, a problem that you hear. I, I'm less concerned about that uh, in the in actually as, as an issue because you know if you have the right treatments, um, you know at the at the back end, uh, you know uh, there have been NOx catalysts and diesel engines forever, and, and they work pretty well. Um, so it's not like you need, you know, there, there aren't solutions out there to solve that. So I, I really think that's that, that probably is overblown somewhat. Um, but uh, about the safety issue, I think, um, yeah, I think that's going to take time. I think it's why methanol uh, today, I think, is a little farther ahead of, of ammonia in terms of uh, as a zero carbon shipping fuel alternative. But I think, I think ammonia is going to win in the long term. Despite all that, and the re- the reason I think ammonia is going to win in the long term is well, I guess there's two two main reasons. One is that it has the potential to be the cheapest of all the uh, of all the zero carbon fuels, um, and I think in the long term economics tends to tends to win out, and these safety issues, while um, not trivial, uh, will be solved. Um, the second reason I think is is just a matter of okay, so you want to make methanol and you really want to make it at scale. You need a huge amount of carbon dioxide to do that, um, or or you know some whatever carbon source you're using. But if you're making zero carbon uh, methanol, you're 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 starting usually with carbon dioxide, and then you're talking about okay, how are you going to get carbon dioxide at the at the scale that you need to really revolutionize shipping? It's an enormous amount. So either you're going to the the um, you're not going to take out of the air. It, it, that's impractical economically. Um, you're probably going to end up um, converting biomass into CO2, and that's you know uh, I I was at a conference where I heard Maersk talking about this, you know, big European shipping company, um, and others. Um, I, I think there are at the end of the day big challenges there um, from the. You're getting enough land to to grow the biomass to uh, well are you going to co-locate your uh, hydrogen production which tends to be on along the coast um, that obviously need for both ammonia and methanol with your co2 production uh, that tends to be you know more inland where you can grow the biomass um, you know how are you going to transport the gases um, all these problems can also be solved but not for free and um, you know, I think that that's really what drives the the, the economics of the uh, the cost advantage for ammonia, which is that um, both ammonia and methanol need hydrogen, but the other thing you need for methanol is CO two, which you have to get somehow. While for ammonia, you need nitrogen, which you just pull out of the air. And pulling a feedstock out of the air is a very attractive uh, thing when you're talking about um, long term economics. So that's that that's why I'm optimistic for ammonia in in maritime shipping. Um, and then just to, to touch on your other point about power generation, um, I know that in Japan, uh, you know, due to the, the, the Fukushima um, incident a while back, uh, you know, they had shut down their, their nuclear plants uh, for a while. I think they're starting to come back now. Um, but the, the solution for that uh, in Japan, um, since there is, uh, you know, a limited amount of uh, access to fossil fuels there, was they actually restarted their coal-driven uh, uh, power plants in response, and um, that coal is obviously the the dirtiest of the fuels. And so they what they did was they said by 2030 we're going to try to shift these coal plants from uh, 100% coal to running on 80% coal, 20% ammonia, uh, which from a technical standpoint is is fairly easy to do, I'm told. Um, and uh, you know that's that that's process is, is underway now. I, I think Korea is doing uh, similar things. Um, and so I think that's, uh, that's the opportunity for ammonia in, in power generation is, is, is largely to, to start to, uh, as a replacement for, for coal. But I think, I think in the long term, uh, shipping is, is uh, a bigger market and a more attractive market for, for ammonia in the, in the, you know, 2030, 2040 timeframe. Yeah, the the coal replacement is a really interesting angle, but it's it's sort of very geographically specific to Japan and a few other places. But 
Yeah, I think I tend to agree with you, especially because there are better things to do with methanol. Like there's if you're going to go through all the effort of pulling carbons out of somewhere and, you know, there's turn that into other chemicals, higher value things than burning it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and, and we do need those uh, higher value chemicals. Oh, sure. I mean, you've got to come from somewhere. I mean, you know, as much as, you know, we'd love to reduce the use of, of, of plastics, um, the idea that, that, that plastics are not going to be around for a while uh, is, is uh, not one I subscribe to. So it's, um, we're going to need a, a way to make plastics more sustainable. And if that's the case, uh, you know, uh, starting from, from, from carbon dioxide going to, uh, you know, precursors, uh, whether it's methanol or, or other, um, you know, C1, C2 uh, uh, precursors, I think uh, makes a lot of sense, and so um, you know I, I, I agree with you. If you're gonna if you're gonna take uh, you're gonna do something carbon dioxide, um, better to lock it up in a plastic also where it doesn't contribute to global warming and replace uh, some fossil fuel as a feedstock for the plastic than to use it as fuel. I think that's uh, that 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 makes sense more sense to me. While we're on ammonia, I wanted to ask you about scale up because you know Haberbosch is this. 100-year-old process, like 110-year-old process. It's very large scale. It's very high temperature, but it's also very efficient. I think like a new Haber-Bosch plant is, you know, within like 10% of the theoretical limit of efficiency um, for that process, which obviously, you know, there's fundamental, there's a sort of fundamental amount of energy you need. Uh, You know, Copernic is developing lower temperature uh, catalysts. How do you see these novel processes scaling up? You know, are you looking to sort of replicate that very large scale model? Is it going to be smaller scales, more distributed production, maybe more multiples? How are you thinking about competing with or complementing the existing base of, of ammonia production? Yeah, so I, I think if you look at the ammonia process, the Haber-Bosch process uh, in detail, first of all, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with the high level point that it is uh, you know, a fairly well-designed process. And if you look at it, certainly from the lens of um, are you going to, com- when you compare it to other processes like ele- electrochemical ammonia production, uh, plasma-based uh, uh, ammonia production, microwaves, that there's a whole bunch of you know, alternatives that are proposed out there. Um, but from a combination of efficiency, uh, scale, and, and, and critically compared to some of them, uh, these, uh, uh, the, just the CapEx costs, it's, it's, it's relatively low CapEx. Um, I think um, thermochemical ammonia production has a lot of advantages, particularly at scale. And that's why um, at Copernic, you know, we're developing a uh, drop-in replacement catalyst for the existing uh, Haber-Bosch catalyst. So for those people who are not aware um, the existing thermochemical catalysts are these little pebbles. They wouldn't look out of place in your garden. They're, they're a few millimeters in diameter. Um, so we're developing a catalyst with the same millimeter scale pebble form factor, uh, but uh, just with uh, improved chemistry. Um, so that's, uh, that's our approach. And that allows us uh, a number of advantages. One, it allows us to be a drop-in replacement and do retrofits for existing uh, uh, Haber-Bosch plants, which I think is very important. Um, and I do think that if you look at the uh, uh, efficiency, uh, yes, on the one hand, um, you know, it's a, it's a fairly efficient process. On the other hand, uh, it still uh, is responsible for about, you know, 1% of global CO2 emissions. And, and at, at just at the scale that ammonia is made, um, you know, 180 million tons a year, close to 200 million tons a year, um, small improvements in efficiency uh, have a big impact, actually a lot bigger impact than, uh, you know, if you take a very small scale process and you improve the efficiency by 50%, um, uh, you know, you don't make, uh, you know, a fraction of the impact that you would uh, making, uh, you know, improving the Haber-Bosch process by a smaller amount. Um, And then, you know, in terms of distributed versus large scale, um, I think if you're talking about an application like maritime shipping, like we were talking before, uh, that's inherently large scale, and at large scale, you need the uh, you need large scale solutions, and uh, uh, they have the best economics. They're just uh, they're just more practical at the scale. So, um, you know, I think we were very interested at Copernic in in helping solve that problem and, and supplying a catalyst that works at the larger scale. But that said, uh, we're completely agnostic. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of uh, smart designs for uh, Haber-Bosch ammonia done on the distributed scale. 
Uh, there are startups like Remo and others who are developing these kind of things, and and we uh, we're very happy to support them as well. Um, you know, from our point of view, you know, we'll have a Catalyst product that that works um, and uh, that works across you know the scales. So uh, you know, we're we're happy to sell to 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 everyone uh, in the ammonia space. Well, thanks uh, for all for the uh, the insights and time and everything here, uh, Jacob. There was one other thing I've been wanting to ask you about though, because you. Uh, when I went over your background earlier, I, I actually left left one part out, which is before you went to BASF, you actually went back into academia That's right. and, yeah. and did a postdoc. Um, and you worked on superconductors. So Absolutely. I've been wanting to ask you what you thought about the whole LK99 uh, <laughs> episode that we had this past fall. Do, do not listen to the LK99 episode. It aged, All right. So, so, so for I don't want to say it aged terribly, but so, so for the super nerds who have uh, who have made it this far, you you know you get to you get to nerd out even farther. <laughs> um, so yeah, my, Mike, of course has got that all right. And, uh, I have been following this, you know, just, uh, you know, even though I'm no longer in the space, uh, just out of curiosity, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad thing overall. I mean, I think that, um, the, um, you know, getting to a high super, you know, room temperature superconductor was something that really drew me into the space, uh, at the, at the start. Um, I think it's a, uh, a really fascinating scientific problem, maybe the most uh, interesting pure scientific problem in, in condensed matter physics and, and a sure Nobel Prize um, for whoever figures that out. Uh, I still have some ideas like in the back of my head, so maybe my mind <laughs> Maybe that's your next startup. <laughs> but, um, uh, but in the meantime, I think, um, yeah, you know, it's surprising to me that there were all these, these, these publications uh, um, that didn't hold up. Um, you know, some of them I read, uh, you know, I could just tell just reading the paper that this was, this was likely not legitimate. Um, it, it, it's surprising to me, I guess, a little bit, because you, if, if you're going to make a claim that big, that's, that's almost like a guaranteed Nobel Prize if you got it, um, you're, you're going to, you're inviting the highest level scrutiny of what you're doing. And so if, if you, you know, if you're doing anything that is, uh, like it's all questionable. You might want to do it in an area where you might get a little bit less of a spotlight. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know that's that's what it is, and and uh, it's it's really too bad uh, for the field. But I'm I, you know I'm sure uh, in the long run, um, you know that's the that's the benefit of the scientific method is that it, uh, and the scientific process that for for its flaws it does uh, catch these things and things have to be reproducible and and um, you know at the end of the day the what what's real tends to win out so. I'm sure that will be the case here. It, it seems like a situation where obviously, you know, we've kind of come to the conclusion that, yeah, like that wasn't a real breakthrough. But as you sort of touched on, I think it does reflect a little bit of a dysfunction in academia where you had, it seemed like a lot of weird, you know, personal and like structural issues at work um, within that research group and a bunch of different people publishing different things for different reasons. I guess I'm curious, you know, there's been a number of high profile scandals across academia uh, with like replication um, over the last five, 10 years. And you've worked in, in academia, in corporate innovation. How do you see, I guess, just, um, I guess I'm just curious, like, you know, how big of a problem do you really see this type of issue as being? Is it something that, you know, crops up now and then as high profile, but isn't, you know, overwhelmingly good work is being done or how are you how are you thinking about that and, and just academia academia's role going forward yeah well i mean you know it's a problem obviously hardly unique to material science right i, I think uh, mostly you hear about this uh, issue in the pharmaceutical industry my, my my wife works for for a large pharma company and um you know this is a it's a, it's a huge problem in terms of when you're developing a medicine um therapy uh yeah, I mean, the alzheimer's know, therapy was like the biggest scandal probably yeah, in the, but they're, they're, the it's, it's 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 almost endemic um and it, you know we can have a whole nother podcast i'm sure of the perverse incentives that, that exist in uh primarily in academic research um you, even more than corporate research in this case uh um you know to you know, publish or perish and and you know you're you're kind of evaluated uh by the number of nature and science papers you have uh more than anything else um and, and also the, just the limitations of peer review, uh, 
you know, it, it, it's the best system we have, but that's that doesn't mean it's it's set up to catch everything, and and and, and certainly can you know, I'm sure there are ways that it can be improved, but um, yeah, I mean, just at a high level, uh, um, you know, well, I, I guess I'll leave it on this note. Uh, while there are certainly problems, it's it's a problem. Things need to be discussed. Uh, the stuff is harmful for the field and for innovation, and so it needs to be cleaned up. I don't also want to over-exaggerate the problem, which is that, you know, still scientific innovation is uh, amazing, you know, in the 21st century, uh, you know, there's, 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 you know, just, just the uh, um, look, look at COVID and the response to COVID and the, 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 how those vaccines got spun up. I mean, it's a scientific miracle how, uh, you know, how quickly, we, you know, that uh, the world was able to respond to a global pandemic from that point of view. Uh, and I think the you know the average person kind of either <laughs> hopefully they, they 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 believe in the first place that was a good thing, and secondly, even if they you know if they don't, they they kind of probably don't appreciate the amount of science that went into it. So um, I'll just leave out the note that I think that um, while there are problems overall, uh, our, you know, scientific innovation is proceeding uh, at a breakneck pace in, in you know right now globally, and and uh, as I said, in the uh, these problems tend to to get solved, um, it may be in imperfect ways, but they, it's not like, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're here touting this breakthrough new superconductor, um, you know, the, the, the community tends to, to, to get it right in the longer run where it's important. So who would do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who would go on a podcast and, and tout a superconductor? <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, I do think when, while these things are kind of alarming, that it does tend to come to light relatively quickly when, when something's not legit, but, uh, but, um, Copernic is, uh, hopefully quite legit and, uh, hopefully we'll be continuing to hear, uh, hear more from, uh, no doubt, no doubt legit, but we're not Theranos, whatever we are. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll continue to hear more good things from you, but, uh, thanks for, thanks for coming on and, uh, we really appreciate it. No, thanks guys. I, you know, always uh, been a huge fan of Lux Research and so um, always happy to talk and, and uh, thanks for the invite. It's been, it's been a great time. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.